Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to another episode of the Self Build Plus podcast, where we chat with self builders, suppliers, and experts about all things home building and renovating in Ireland on both sides of the border. I'm Astrid Matson, your host and the editor of Self Build Magazine. Okay, so today I have the pleasure of being joined by Paul Lawford, who built his own tiny house on wheels there a couple of years ago. And he's here to chat about um, what, how he built it and the pros and cons of tiny house living. So, Paul, I guess we might as well start with um, explaining what a tiny house is. Um, there might not be many definitions out there, but like any set definition. But I suppose w- what would constitute a tiny house? Yes. So thanks for having me on the podcast, Astrid. I guess, yeah, there is no clearly defined definition as to what a tiny house is. But what mine is basically is it's a box on wheels and it's six meters long, four meters tall and two and a half meters wide. It's it's a very, very small house, you know, it's in the name. So it's built to a same standard as any normal kind of a house or depending on what kind of construction method you go with. But mine is a timber frame, you know, it's got double and triple glazed windows. It's got a heating system. It's really well insulated. Um, so, yeah, like it's a house, yeah. but it's really, really small. Yeah. And it's on wheels. So in terms of planning, um, we're in a gray area. You you can move the house whenever you want. Does it stay on the wheels all the time? Yeah, so it's built onto a purpose-built chassis. So I got a chassis from a German company named Alco Cobra, which we're really good to deal with. Um, so it's a hot tip galvanized chassis. It's on four wheels and then it has four kind of jack legs that stabilize it when it's in position. So yeah, it's quite, it's quite a highly engineered trailer for something that doesn't get moved very often. But yeah, it's, it's, it's permanently on the wheels, which causes one minor issue, but not too many. Um, and yeah, the planning, I mean, it's like anything else. You need to get planning. There's, there's no two ways about it. I think if we got a lot more of these in Ireland and made them a more common thing, that we could get some kind of different legislation. But I think that the reality is that, I mean, there are people living in tiny houses all over Ireland. We just don't call them that. We call them a bedsit. 
um you know <laughs> yeah um so so just on the wheels thing um those do the wheels go down then what's when like if you leave so, the car like on, you know and you don't move it for a while there's yeah Surprisingly, the pr- tire pr- pressure has dropped very little. Basically, I've been living in mine for just over 18 months. You know, I built it nearly two years ago now. I built it in about four months and I've been living. I moved into it after four months, basically. And it was it was quite a shell at the time. So I had to put on my construction hat to build the house. But then I had to put on my furniture designer builder hat to finish the house, which proved to be a lot more complicated and I had stopped my life to start to build the house, but I kind of resumed my life after I moved into it. So I just didn't have the same kind of time to commit to it. But in terms of the wheels on the trailer, um, like it's permanently on the four wheels. The way the load is designed to be dispersed through the trailer, it's going through the suspension and into the wheels and onto the ground. There's kind of four legs, one on each corner that that stabilize it. So I use a car jack to get the house level and then I drop the legs that they kind of keep it in position and the only real issue that causes is that if there are really high winds you know the house is four meters tall so you've got two big flat faces that are four meters by six meters it's a big face and if it gets a good gust of wind the house can rock very gently from side to side because obviously it's sitting on suspension so if you've ever slept on a barge or a boat you might be familiar with that feeling (laughs) It scared the life out of me the first couple of times because obviously I'm an amateur and I built the house and I thought the whole place is coming down around me. But thankfully, it's just a normal thing that happens with them. It is something that could be avoided. I do wish I had built in some kind of cross guide system. I could have put it at kind of the the tops of the studs, but I could even put in a a ground anchor with some steel cable on the bottom. It's on the uh, it's on the not very short list of things that I still need to do with the house. Yeah. So, so the, what, what do you mean you could have, you could have built the house differently to make it less, um, less prone to wind loading, is it? Or what Well, it's mean? always going to get the wind loading, but I mean, I'm coming from an events background and when we're putting in temporary structures, we'd always be putting in basically guide ropes that are made out of steel cables that would come at a kind of 45 degree angle to the structure to the ground. So you can easily put them in right. if you're in a high storm, that's going to stop the structure from moving as much, you know? Okay, right. Yeah, sounds a bit high tech, all right. <laughs> you, no, can, no, you, I can, mean, you can handle the, the wind, can't you? <laughs> absolutely, yeah, no problem. <laughs> I mean, it's a common thing that you'd see, and I hate to draw a comparison between these two types of structures, but it's a common thing you'd see in caravans or mobile homes that people put a ground anchor in the ground underneath and then form an exit to ropes, kind of tying the structure down just to give it more of a bracing. So tell us a bit about how you built it. So the you were saying there was um, an advanced house framing method that you used. So you had your chassis and then and then what was the next step? Yeah, so it's a timber frame structure like uh, like you'd see, um, I suppose, a bit more in the States and on, uh, in warmer climates. But um, it's three by three stud that's spread 24 inch on center. Um, you can kind of get away with not using this, the, the, the usual conventional spacing, which would be 16 uh, inch on center and using six by two and four by two because but it's just such a smaller structure it's under such less load that um this system of construction works and obviously it's really advantageous when it comes to the weight of the structure which is something you have to consider with uh, something that's on wheels as well as you know your r value is just going to go up a lot when you're putting less studs in the wall and you're putting more insulation in place of that um and it's cheaper and it's better for the environment as well just by using less materials even less than you would making a structure that's so small anyway Okay. And then after the studs, what you have some sheeting. 
Is that yeah, straight so away? I, I guess I guess from the wall, the wall frame or the wall, if you're looking at a cross section of the wall from the inside of the house to the exterior, on the very inside, you've got six mil of CE2 ply, which is painted. After that, you've got an air barrier. So I'm using a Gerband SD Pro air barrier, um, which is making the house airtight. And after that, then you've got um, the timber stud. And and within the stud, you've got 75 mil of a kind of mineral wool insulation. I think it's made from glass. And then I've got nine mil of CE2 ply, which is kind of giving the house its sheer strength. Um, on top of that, then I've kind of I've kind of made structurally insulated panel, panels out of those nine mil sheets. So after that, you've got a 25 mil of a type of uh, PIO or, or EPS even um, or PIR. Sorry, I always mix the two up and <laughs> foam rigid board insulation. And that's creating a continuous insulation barrier over the entire house. So there's there's no gaps in that except for the windows and the doors and where it overlaps. It's overlapping at a 45 degree rather than butt to butt joint to kind of give it less flex and opportunity for heat to get out or cold to get in. And after that, then I've got my house wrap, which is a, you know, a weatherproof barrier and windproof barrier. And then I've got my cladding. So my cladding on three sides in the roof is just a trapezoidal steel framing, which used to be an old cattle shed that I picked up off the ground. And then the front of my house is Siberian Larch, which I got from a company in Cork, a really good supplier down there. Um, QES, I think they were called, Gary, um, which is weathering quite nicely now. Very good. And the, that cladding then, did you have to treat it in any way, the, especially the one you found on the ground? <laughs> Not a huge amount. You know, I would, I had access to a really large yard at the time I built my house, thanks to a really nice man named uh, Vester out in Ratdowney in, in Leash and my friend Colin Daly, which was an old uh, event connection that I used to work with. Um, so I had a huge yard and basically I just laid out... <sighs> 40 sheets of this of these panels I think there were four meters by a meter each and I just power washed them for about a day to get all of the years they've been sitting on the ground for over 10 years it was a cattle shed that somebody had to knock down to build something else and then they were sitting in a field being neglected for years and um, kind of getting exposed to the weather but but I mean it's a testament to the um the engineering of the sheets and the fact that they could be left in the weather on the ground even for uh, 10 years some of them sitting in water and there's no rust really on them there was the odd hole here and there from where the screws had come out and a little bit of rust around there but i was able to buff that out and just um put some new paint on those little small patches and it's as good as new so i kind of wanted the design of the house to reflect something that you do see pretty much everywhere in rural ireland being cattle shed so i was really happy to kind of reuse that material but give the whole house more of a contemporary look very cool. And and the paint was just regular metal paint, just the stuff you'd get at the builder's merchant. What did you put on it? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So um, I yeah. used a special metals primer like a rust oleum and then just a, I just sprayed on top of that because it was hard to match the color. But I'm cool. talking about like 20 patches the size of your fingernail. Nothing, nothing crazy. It wasn't painting a full sheet or anything. I had actually planned to paint the whole thing black, but then I decided against it once I saw the green on it and I just thought it looked nice. Like I kept it and I thought it fit the environment it was going to be placed in a lot more because it's generally extremely green around where I live. Yep. Yep. So then the 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 larch there, the the timber cladding, does that require any did that require any treatment or did you just leave it to weather? You said it's looking nice at the moment. Yeah, it's an extremely weather resistant timber. It's Siberian larch, so it's it's very, very waterproof as is. Um, I treated it with some yacht varnish and I probably should have put more coats on it if I wanted to keep it. Basically, once I put it on, it just looked so beautiful when it was freshly cut that it was a really nice shade of brown and it will naturally silver over time, similar to the way cedar does, which people really like, but I think I'd rather keep it brown. So I may get around to sanding the whole thing down and then... um 
stay yeah. like putting that protecting layer on the outside as well because obviously it's exposed to the uv but there isn't much of a gutter on the house so well there's no gutter on the house so <laughs> the rain the rain runoff is hitting the walls very hard so that they are exposed to a lot of, of wet like it's not going into the end grain of the wood the overhang of the roof is coming over that bit but it is dripping straight off that into them so i kind of thought i'd put a temporary gutter on but i just never got around to it and um, because with the width restriction i couldn't have one on permanently because you've mm. got to be within 2.44 meters, which is uh, which I exactly am pretty much. There's not much room for um, for anything else there. So that's to in terms of road use, is it? Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. an interesting thing with the design of these houses being on wheels because I've moved the house, I think, three times or like six times if you count up and back. But it's been around for 18 months, you know, so you're spending a lot of money and a lot of engineering and a lot of time to make the thing road worthy when really it's it's primary function. And what it is doing 90 percent of the time is being a house or even 99 percent of that time is being a house, you know. Yeah, but obviously the transience of being able to move it and it being on wheels is completely unique to its type of design. You know, it means that. You know, for one, I could sell it to anyone anywhere, really. You could ship it to the mainland, or you could ship it to England and or the UK, and they're a lot more common in the UK even and on the mainland Europe. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about them being on wheels is, along with the planning aspect and that, is that, I mean, if there was a vacant site, like with an acre of a site in Dublin City, in Galway City, in Cork, in Rathdowney, in any part of Ireland, really, and you could approach the landowner or the council and say, you know, I've got 20 people living in 20 tiny houses. We can populate this site tomorrow with, with 20 people that can start shopping in your shops and benefit your local economy and, and bring in good stuff to your community. And if it doesn't work out after three months, after six months, after two years, sure, they can leave as quick as they came, you know, which I think could be an interesting solution as an alternative to uh, conventional housing because what's the harm in even trying it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It does sound a bit like um, traveller camping grounds, isn't it? A bit like, you Absolutely, know, it's yeah. that kind of community that you're getting. Um, yeah. But the, the, there's obviously the issue of services that, that rears its head. So how did you manage that in terms of, let's say, water, wastewater, electricity? Yeah, so in terms of electricity, I'm totally off grid. Like I've got a, a large solar system, so I've got a 300 amp hour battery and I've got a three and a half kilowatt inverter. That's an absolute workhorse. It can do a nine kilowatt peak load for 30 seconds. So it can even turn on a petrol or a diesel generator or do a lot of other mad stuff. And I've got 12 solar panels in my array, but I'm only using nine and I'm powering myself and another family of four. And obviously there's the dark time of the winter where you kind of have to use a backup generator to get you through. But from about a month ago till about mid-November, I'll be completely self-sufficient in terms of power. So in terms of water, I didn't make the house off-grid. So it's reliant on you plugging water into it, essentially. And the reason for that was that water is just so common in Ireland. It wasn't something I, I saw as a major design flaw. I, I knew the first few places I'd be bringing the house, I'd be able to just plug into the into the mains and I do have a 24 volt water pump as well that I haven't wired into or plumbed into the system but if in future I need to dig a well or I'm near enough to a larger water source that could be used but to be honest water is just so accessible in Ireland being such a small island with hills and, and a lot of rain that it, it wasn't a major design feature for me to be off-grid versus you know say, say electricity 
Um, and then in terms of yeah, the one thing the house wouldn't come ready made with is is waste wastewater treatments. Like there are options, there are like incinerating toilets and stuff like that. But um, what did, what there's did compost. You do? There's compost toilets, which is what I use, and there's a urine separator in that. So obviously the grey and the black can be separated, which is absolutely key. It's not a commonly used thing in Ireland, and probably is something that we should be looking at because uh, understandably, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years ago, that kind of a system wasn't. <laughs> wasn't a good idea at all because we didn't know what we were doing but now we do and we, we know ways to safely work with waste and it's a hell of a lot more energy efficient there's no pumping water all over the country that needed in that kind of a system and i mean even our wastewater systems in ireland should be really moving towards reed beds a lot more commonly than the septic tank systems but i'm sure we'll get there eventually after we caught up with the rest of europe but your look um, and there's yeah. also much more expensive toilet options like incinerating toilets. They're obviously extremely energy intensive, but um, they'd be quite common in Australia and New Zealand and tiny houses. They are expensive, like you're looking at a couple of grand, like five to ten, I believe. But uh, for some people, the switch to mo- move into a compost toilet is just not something that they're comfortable with. So uh, an incinerating toilet is a very hands off solution that isn't a plumbed toilet. Mm-hmm. So the, the compost toilet requires a little bit of upkeep doesn't it you do need to like what's what's involved with it in terms of yeah absolutely i mean you need a safe place to dispose of the waste and you need to be sure that you're living in an area that has a low water table just to make sure that there's no cross contamination which is relatively common to have a lower water table but it very much depends on what part of the country you're living in but yeah you've got to empty it once a week bring it to essentially a hole and chuck it in there and make sure it's stays relatively dry like it's when it's when the waste is mixed with a lot with with liquids that it can become much more dangerous because the pathogens get airborne then and that's that's when you're into that's when it becomes quite dangerous but other than that it's i think it's innocuous after six months and most people double compost it for a year so they let it compost once flip it or flip all the waste and then let it compost again and then it then it's just usually thrown under a tree is what would be the most common thing or left in a field because it's essentially just dirt at that point some people use it for crops but um it's yeah. best not to do that. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of the um, the PV panels, where where are they? And the battery and all that, all that kit. Um, how, yeah, so the, is that separate to the the house itself? That's movable, or how how did no? How so the up? battery the battery's built into the house. All the electrics bar the panels are built into the house. So the battery sits kind of basically all my electrics are hidden underneath my stairs. Um. So I've got, you know, my few, my, a conventional fuse board in there. I've got a few 24 volt fuse boards in there because I'm at, I'm in a 24 volt rather than 12 volt system. So your car would have a 12 volt system. But if you put two of those batteries together, you've, you've got 24 volts, which is just more powerful. Um, And all of that is basically hidden under the stairs. The battery is lead acid, which was the best option at the time. I think um, gel and uh, lithium ion are a little bit cheaper now, but it is a big, huge unit of a thing. Like it's 300 kilos of lead acid, which serves well as ballast on one side of the house but it does take up a, a, a fair bit of space and ultimately if you're trying to keep weight down it's not the most ideal but the panels are on the ground i have a ground array the plan was to put them on the on the roof and that is still partially the plan but what i've found in practice is it's just easier to have them on the ground because you can move them more easily you can change their angle more easily and changing their angle every month does have quite a big impact on their efficiency so I just like it's it's great to put them on the ground to be honest and it's it's easier to get them out of the way of shadows and stuff like that when they're on the ground. Very good. And uh heating and hot water then. So my hot water is a 17 kilowatt boiler so I use gas for my hot water and gas for cooking um some of the year and some of the year I use uh, induction for cooking. But yeah, my shower runs on 
on gas and propane and then i need to put in a um a water heater because i have excess energy now like I, my battery is full every day and i'm just wait like i'm not capturing energy half of the day because i don't have anywhere to put it but if i put in a water heater and a tank system i could just be using that excess energy to heat heat excess or to heat water which would definitely be a pra- practical thing to do and then the other one was oh heating yeah so i've got an air to air heat system which is you know like an air to water except instead of heating water for rods it's just directly heating the air it's an air conditioner unit basically if you go to anywhere in mainland europe it's the kind of thing you see everywhere it's extremely efficient it was really cost effective and obviously being solar powered it's basically working for free for me now until the very end of the of the autumn really and it being such a small space, like I think my system is 9,000 BTUs. Um, like you barely have to use it at all, to be honest. And the nice thing is it's a dehumidifier as well and it cleans the air and it also cools. So the house does get really warm because it's very, there's a lot of windows in my house and it being airtight and well insulated, you do get a greenhouse effect, which is really nice most of the time. But in the, in the height of the summer, you can just turn the whole house into a fridge quite effectively by um, turning the air con on. So that's nice. That's great, yeah. And the the gas then it's a bottle you have. That's how how does that work? Is that you yeah, just exactly. leave it outside so, or? Yeah, exactly. So I've got a large propane tank that I keep outside. Okay, and it just has the the connection into the house. Um, exactly, doesn't that yeah. create a hole in the wall? <laughs> Oh, there's plenty of holes in the wall, don't worry, but they've all been sealed around. Um, Yeah, it was a very difficult thing for me to do to put those holes in the wall, but you've got to have them, unfortunately. Like, I have a small heat recovery ventilation. Um, It's quite a cheap one, but it's not the worst in the world. I've said before on my YouTube channel that it's that is awful but for what it's cost it's not the worst in the world I, I use it a bit more now than i used to but um there's a few holes you know i've got to have extractor fans for my shower a space this small being airtight like managing the humidity is really important and i should invest in a much better um heat recovery ventilation system so i did meet somebody at the self-build conference last year that i need to follow up about that again because it never got back to me but um really my heat recovery ventilation should be self-regulating the humidity you know whereas the one i have it does not do that you know it's it, it's it's a, a lower price range model that basically just swaps the air and keeps some of the heat which is definitely better than nothing but i still kind of open the windows and door for 20 minutes half an hour every morning just to change the air of the house yeah yeah and uh the dehumidifier on the air to air heat pump does it help a bit do you feel that does anything or no, not in the winter. I think I'm not entirely sure how the physics of that works, but it works really well in the summer when I, it's, I'm not entirely sure about the science behind it. But mm. in the summer, the dehumidifier, when like it's a dehumidifier by default of the way it functions. So in the summer, when it's doing more cooling, it will it'll put out a lot of water. But in the winter, when it's uh, heating the air more, so it just doesn't doesn't seem to do a whole lot to dehumidify. Okay, and um, windows and doors. Then tell us about getting those in and finding those yeah so i wanted to use as many found and secondhand materials as i could because it, like th- this whole project i suppose to, to zoom out a little bit was an experiment really to see if someone who was a total amateur could build their own home and could that home tick a few boxes and one of those boxes was being sustainable and obviously anything that already exists is going to be more sustainable than something that's getting newly manufactured and a project this small it's quite easy to use found materials versus a conventional house like you, it's going to be extremely difficult to find enough secondhand or reclaimed windows and doors to do an entire house consistently but to do this one 
you know, I've got what one, two, three, four, five windows, you know, on one door. So that's a lot more, it's a lot more achievable. So I got most of my windows and doors on um on adverts study and um, from around, but like two of them were X display units. They're Swedish double glazed, they're amazing. One of them's triple glazed, and then one of them I traded a keyboard for for a guy in advert with a guy in advert. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So while my windows worked out really well and almost two years into the project, there's no issues with any of them. My door has caused me quite a bit of frustration. So it opens in. So I thought it was an open outdoor. Unfortunately, from the pictures and from the description, it seemed a lot like an open outdoor. But when my friend picked it up for me and brought it to where I was working in the house, it was very clearly an open indoor. So it wasn't designed to keep water out the other way around. So I had to go on the inside, basically. Um, and it just hasn't really worked out well that well for me. It's a very heavy door. Um, it, it sits on three hinges, whereas I reckon it should be five because it has a square tube frame on the inside to make it more secure. But yeah, it's just caused me a bit of frustration there and it was a bit leaky at points. And yeah, it's been a basically an opening door on such a tiny space. is just a crazy design yeah. <laughs> design choice. You know, it just does not work and it's 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 getting in the way a bit. Um, so looking forward to changing that when I eventually find one on adverts or somewhere. I, I will probably just have to pony up the two rand that it costs to get a new door manufactured. But uh, it's on the list. Yeah, yeah. So apart from the door, what else would you change about the process or the or or finishes or is there anything else you'd change with the magic wand? To be honest, no. To my surprise, you know, I haven't had any major major problems. I would say I loved like like in my approach, there's plenty of things I do differently, but that was more about how I approach the work rather than the actual result of the work. But in terms of the design of the house, there was there's nothing really too major. Like, I mean, I have a loft, which is where I sleep. And I only recently added a purling into that to give it more of a just more more strength, basically. So I would have done that from the get go, obviously. But other than that, it, there's nothing too too major I would have done differently. Yeah. Um, but in terms of my approach to the work, like I did move into the house and it was quite unfinished, which was totally necessary um, because I needed both the break and to wrap my head around the design a bit more, but I would never do that again. I'd certainly finish the thing before moving into it if I could. But um, like, I'm still working on it really, you know, when I get the time on weekends and when I take some leave for work and stuff like that. But um, I still need to build a couch on wheels. I still need to uh, build a new kitchen, which I can't really do until I get rid of my open indoor and a few other little bits like that. But I mean, furniture design is a, is a whole different kettle of fish um, to construction you know they, they are two very different disciplines and when you're 
dealing with a small space you have to be quite like your design does have to be multifaceted things you need to have at least two functions if not three and as an amateur coming to design that does just make it a whole lot more difficult it's not like you can just look up a plan for a wardrobe or look up a plan for stairs and apply that to your project you kind of have to take a few plans smash them together think about your own needs draw that and sketch up or whatever and then go to making it so as an amateur that does prove quite challenging and it just really adds a lot of lead time to doing any of those kind of bits yeah i bet yeah so did you what are you most proud of that you you built for the house Oh, the whole thing, I would say. <laughs> um, Furniture-wise, I mean, in terms of furniture, like multifunctional stuff. Did you I build mean, it, anything yet, or is this yeah, still that design yeah. thing? <laughs> I mean, I've built a pantry that slides out from behind my fridge, basically, and I've built um, I built my staircase is a, is a finished thing, or almost finished, I suppose, but the staircase hides all the electrics, and it's also where I keep all my stuff, you know, because it's drawers, cabinetry, and all of that. And then it's also, I basically made all the steps double height and double depth. So it can be used as a standing desk, which I would often do. And it can be used as furniture. You can sit you can sit about three or four people on it comfortably with their backs against a, a solid surface. So that worked out really well. Obviously, you're basically, it's basically like taking the stairs two steps at a time all the time, which is, uh, which is fine. I don't mind it at all. And it also looks a lot cleaner. It's a lot more minimal looking because it's not just a bunch of steps. So yeah, I'm really happy with it. I use birch ply. I probably over-engineered a lot, a lot of parts of it. I, I should have probably made a more joiny stick frame and then put some six mil birch ply over that instead of eighteen. But we live and we learn. That's right. And how much? How much did it all cost? Um, if you're happy enough to share that. No, no, absolutely. Like, I mean, the whole point of me doing this is to show other people that like this is an option and like I did I did move I did build this in as an experiment and I've since been living in it as an experiment to see is a small space any good or not and the answer for me is very much yes so since then I'm, I'm quite on a mission to help people to build, live better lives through tiny houses you know and the project cost me in and around not including the solar system now would be about 24 grand, but you're not factoring in any wage for me there. Whereas I was the you know project manager, designer and the main laborer on the project. I did have about, oh, I think it was about 150 hours of, of professional help between the solar system and my friend Colm, who was um, charging me for or charged me very little for some plumbing work and for some carpentry help as well and then i had about 250 hours of friends help between sanding and painting and doing different bits and bobs like that for me um, and then i stuck nearly a thousand hours into it myself so that's not really factored into that budget that budget is almost just materials um, and it doesn't really cover off buying any tools or renting the space I think if you factored in labor, um, if you factored in labor, some space hire, stuff like that, um, you'd be looking at more like 30 grand mark per cost. Um, but that is building it to quite a high standard and finishing it to a high standard, including really good appliances and like the, the level of finish inside. Like I'm using 18 mil birch ply and stuff like that. It's not, there's no kind of low cost but materials inside, which you like, you could easily build one of these for considerably less if you just sacrificed on some of those bits a little bit and similarly with the insulation i i don't really believe in building something that's not going to be like it's not it's it's not sustainable if it's not keeping the heat that you're putting into it really in my opinion so i don't believe in doing that but if you didn't have the resources to, to spend 30 grand then you could certainly do it for less yeah so so what was the breakdown then if if you have that in in your head in terms of let's say the chassis must have cost a little bit i presume uh, and then the the timber frame structure, insulation, um, all the, the different bits. Yeah, it's a tough one to remember off the top of my head. Yeah. Now, it was a while. <clears throat> Excuse me. But 
yeah, like I think roughly would it have been like half the structural half of that would have been structural costs and the other half would have been finishing it or is that fair enough no to... i mean most no. of it would have been structural costs like i okay. mean it's, it's it is quite tricky because of the, the fluctuation of prices have been so much and i yeah. bought half of my materials in was it 2020 i'm trying to remember the years now but i bought a lot of my materials probably six months before i built it so i think it was was it even 2019 that I, I would have bought those materials? And then I started to build in 2020 um, and bought the other half of the materials then. So there was a big difference in the price then. It has come back down a lot since then, thankfully. But um, the insulation wasn't too bad. Making it airtight definitely added a grand or two and a lot of time, but was 100% worth it, you know. But as I say, I spent about 400 euro on tape alone just to cover up the joins and, and any of the uh, any of the holes and all that kind of stuff. So that was a surprisingly higher extra cost. The insulation yeah. wasn't too bad. That the rolls of insulation aren't too bad. The, the mineral fiber, but the sheets were expensive. But again, I mean that the lack of thermal bridging in the house is phenomenal. So it was it was totally a worthwhile investment. The chassis was really expensive. The like the chassis was in the region of five grand, and that's um that's a huge amount of money to pay for something that gets used as a trailer. You know, a handful of times. It's a really good product, but like if. There are other ways to build these houses. You can weld steel I-beams together. If it's only going to be moved once or twice in its life, then that is an alternative that will cost you a fraction of that, you know. But um, Yeah. So how, how did you, where did you get all your supplies then for the timber and insulation? Um, I know a lot of stuff was salvaged, but the stuff you had to buy new. Yeah, so I sourced the materials from a few different locations. Like I got a lot of the timber locally from the local builders, merchants, but they didn't really do many discounts and they didn't the quality of the timber in particular I, I really wasn't happy with like I was using rough rough construction timber to make the house but it was extremely rough and extremely inconsistent which caused it just it just made it a lot longer for me as an amateur to be correcting um correcting those the, the kind of inconsistencies that come with inconsistent timber so that wasn't ideal um other than that I got materials all over I got them in different builders merchants in both Dublin and in Kilkenny and all over really I I had to import one or two specialist brackets because we just didn't have them uh, I couldn't find them rather in Ireland brackets that would attach my timber frame to my steel chassis they're, they're basically storm tie down brackets that you more so see in American stuff where they get tornadoes but obviously when a tiny house is getting pulled down the road it's essentially getting exposed to an earthquake and really high winds at the same time so you've really got to lock the structure down onto the chassis in a, in a way that's going to take those kind of forces and insulation at the time was was quite expensive did you is that what you shopped around for a lot as well when you're saying you source things in from all over the country yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. and obviously getting insulation like that doesn't that's not split at 400 that's split at 600 so that you can put it between 24 inch centers was extremely hard to find as well so I, to be honest, I think I found really good suppliers through doing the first house and now I'd be going back to a lot of the, of the same suppliers because I would get a certain amount of material off someone, shop around a bit and then find someone much, much better and much easier to work with. And then I would happily go back to a lot of those suppliers that I once I learned who the good guys were, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, how about the research then? How did you look at like when you were starting and during the whole process? What did you turn to for, was it like YouTube or was it? It was YouTube. You, yeah, yeah, it was largely YouTube. You know, I bought a book that was absolutely rubbish, total waste of time. Um, and then 
I was looking stuff on the up on the internet. So if, if, if a bunch of different YouTubes, I think I bought one ebook that was quite good of a couple that built one, and they were a design couple. So I think she was an architect, so obviously had loads of brilliant ideas. And I robbed a few pieces of their design, and then I robbed just loads of bits of bobs that I saw on YouTube. But but YouTube is just phenomenal. Um, it was it like I I definitely bounced some ideas off people I knew that were more construction y construction professionals but like saying this will make sense or this works right and they were like yep yeah, i don't see why it wouldn't but um i never got a consultant in to say no no you can't do that you absolute maniac which maybe i should have done but i you know it was important for me to to, to do it in the most replicable and approachable way that basically anyone who has access to the internet should be able to copy this and just go for it you know yeah well, I suppose the the structural aspect is is the most important, but sure, it's it is a box at the end of the day, isn't it? It's so, a small it's, box. It's a very yeah. like relative to a normal house. I mean, don't get me wrong. Anybody that comes into the said tiny house still stick their head up and look and go, "Wow, it's it's a lot bigger than I expected." But it's plenty of space, is how I put it. For for context, it's about one hundred and thirty square foot, and then another fifty square foot if you count the loft, which is. Well, debatable whether you should count the loft as extra floor space or not. But, yeah. Well, isn't that your bedroom? That's my bedroom, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. so it's, it's, it is a bedroom. <laughs> it is a bedroom, but it, the head height in there is only enough to sit up straight in the bed, so it's, you know... <laughs> right, you okay, count, yeah. Count by yeah. the cubic meters or something, but yeah. Yeah. But like I said, you know, it's, it's plenty of room, and I never... It, it didn't really... It doesn't feel like a sacrifice, you know? It doesn't feel like, oh, I wish I had a bigger place. The only time it becomes... The only time I really feel that it's small is when, if I want to have 10 people over. The most we've had in the house is 14 during a party, but which was pretty wild, but I mean... Yeah, and it's just one thing you're going to have to accept is that you can't really have a dinner party for eight people in your tiny house. Mm-hmm. Or you can try, but it'll be cosy. <laughs> um, and how do you get into the house, actually? Do you have steps that fold out? or Because it's quite a bit up from the ground, obviously. Well, I use I used a low loader chassis, which basically means the bed of the chassis is sitting almost with the, like on a parallel with the wheels of the, of the, um, the axles, essentially. So it, it moves around that a bit. Uh, it means that like my first step up is only 400 mil. So my, my the, the bottom of my house is basically 400 mil from the ground. Um, and the low loader also gives you a much better center of gravity. It just means you have to build around the wheels basically, but it gives you a better center of gravity. And it also means you get much more head height because I wanted to keep the thing under four meters, which is the most common height restriction in Europe. I think in Ireland, it's something crazy like 4.6 or 4.8. But um, if I want to stick it on a boat and send it to the mainland, you know, it's got to be under four meters. I've, besides four meters of loads when you're using the low loader but it's basically just one step and you're in so Mm-mm-mm. and um so we i think we discussed most of the pros and cons did we miss anything that you wanted to mention in terms of tiny house living no i mean like i guess the big thing is that they're just they're a hell of a lot more environmentally friendly than a conventional house they're a hell of a lot cheaper and a hell of a lot quicker to build than a conventional house so while i don't say that they are the solution to the housing or environmental crisis i certainly do think that they're an option and they're an option really worth exploring if you're the type of person that thinks they could be into this or if you think it could just be something that you do for maybe 10 years while you save money to get something bigger you know it could be a really good stopgap. yeah so so where do you see the future for the tiny house movement in ireland where do you see all this going like in a let's say with your rose tinted glasses and maybe a more mm-hmm. cynical cynical i suppose cynical would be there's there won't be very many people doing it but where do you think this could go yeah good question i mean 
<laughs> if you want to be completely cynical about it, I'd say they'll just outrightly ban them because there's loads of people getting rich off of the housing crisis. And this is a is a seriously different price range for people. You know, it's a much more accessible. Like you could build one of these at like 30 grand. But in terms of rose tinted glasses, like like I said, like I, I'm on a bit of a mission to help people to live better lives through tiny houses. And I think there's untold benefits for a person like it, the economic benefits of living in a house that costs you. 30, 40 grand plus the small tiny piece of land you'd need to put it on versus taking out a mortgage or having to spend a couple of hundred grand is just, it could really change people's lives for the better. It means you could change career. It means you could afford to go back to college. It means you could move into a career that maybe you prefer to do, but doesn't pay enough to pay your rent usually that, you know, I think it's kind of boundless how much better people's lives could be if, if, if housing was a lot more affordable. And I think this is a, a much more affordable approach for people. So what I would like to do and what I'm working towards doing is getting 20 of these houses together and running another experiment to see what kind of a benefit we could bring to a local community. Because now that I like, I feel I've ticked the box of proven that someone who's an amateur can build their own home. And I, I do honestly believe anybody can do this. You don't need to be constructionally minded. I think if you put the work in and you, you just don't give up on it that you could re replicate this. But I think the next thing now is, is is to scale that up and put a bunch of these together and show why it could be a good thing. And we could, we could make some real social progress through doing that. Yeah. hundred percent. And uh, just, just to roll back a bit, there was just one question about the solar panels and um, in terms of the cost of them, did you, do you have kind of a indication of how much it costs for the panels and the battery and all the bits? Yeah, and I mean, like I, I, I had a friend to help me with that. That was some of the professional help that I got was um just an amazingly skilled guy who lived off grid for 15 years. And a lot of the tech we use is, is old secondhand stuff. So solar panels have changed a lot in the last 20 years in terms of they've just gotten a hell of a lot more efficient and a lot more affordable but inverters, charge controllers, none of that stuff has really changed. So we bought really old stuff and and, and just maintained it and got, or got it back up to spec. Um, so I spent about eight grand on my system, but I mean, my system is completely over-engineered because I'm an event professional. Like we've used this house to power late night parties for over, you know, a, a kind of day festival for 14 hours, preparing a sound system and a stage and it didn't even blink. And it's also powering another family as well as me. Like the idea with this system being so over-engineered was that you can plug the next one or two houses into this house. And again, that cost of about eight grand, it's not really representative because we were buying older equipment and refurbishing it and stuff. So whereas that's around what I spent, it's it's really hard to say if that's that would be directly replicable. I mean, there's a lot of really good technology out there that can be refurbished and re rebuilt and reused if you know what you're doing. But if you went to a solar contractor and wanted all this stuff new and, and tried to get a system to the same design as mine, you could be looking at upwards of 20 grand, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as you say, maybe if if it's just for that one house, then you wouldn't need as, uh, as many panels and as big a system either. So it's a question of... Yeah. Certainly not. I mean, my, my power draw is extremely low. The only thing that really takes a lot of power on demand is the washing machine. You know, that takes about, if you use it on eco mode, it'll use about 800 watts over the course of three hours. But I don't have an electric oven or anything mad like that. And the 24 volt system is incredibly effective for charging devices and power and lights and chargers and that kind of thing. So it really need to, the size of your solar system is really going to depend on your needs. Yeah, I suppose what I would love to see in Ireland is a kind of version of construction conscription, because while we need absolute professionals like architects and builders and carpenters and all the rest to build conventional houses, building tiny houses is just a lot more approachable for amateurs. And I would love to help anybody who's who's thinking about doing this. So if you are thinking about doing this, do give me a shout. 
check out my website smallchange.ie follow me on uh, youtube where i'm going to be putting videos to show you how to do this and eventually i'm going to be running some short courses to kind of help people get on the tools and start designing their own homes so yeah thanks so much for having me on astrid and uh, hopefully i'll speak to you again yeah no definitely thanks so much and just sorry <laughs> there's always one more question last one i promise in terms of the <laughs> tools the tools you actually do need um what are the tools you need like, do you need do you need some like obviously you're saying it's for everyone, but like I suppose there there is an investment on that side, isn't there? I presume. Yeah, I mean, in terms of getting on the tools, like that's a tough question because I mean, you need to cut wood and you need to join wood, and there's so many different ways to do that. And I think there's building your there's the construction side and there's the fit out side, and you do need different tools for those two things, like um. You don't really need a table saw. You don't need a miter saw, but they'll make your life a hell of a lot easier and they'll speed things along a hell of a lot more. You can rent them. If you're only going to use them for four months, you can buy them and sell them. You can buy them secondhand. I invested in all that kind of kit because the more I did it, the more I loved it. And it was definitely something I saw myself doing longer term. But you need saws, you need drills, you need impact drivers and stuff. But like, you, you, it's only, a, it's a couple of grand if you get really good ones or it's a lot less. And it, you can, they're, they're so resellable as well because modern power tools are just, phenomenal pieces of machinery even the way they've come across come along in the last couple of years like i have a battery powered table saw and a battery powered miter saw if you told me two years ago you could use a power a table saw that was battery powered i'd say you're absolutely having a laugh you're wasting your time it'll probably cut one piece of timber and be need a recharge but they're just phenomenal the efficiency of these machines so you can definitely resell them i mean they're really built to last and they're built to be used by trades they're, they're not built to be used by amateurs and what, what i mean by that is that they're they're designed to be used all day every day not just for a three-month project so they will hold their value excellent thanks so much Paul. all right no worries Take care. The day. speak to you again you too. Bye, bye. Cheers. bye join us next time for more tips and advice from experts and self-builders alike and if you haven't already, subscribe to Self-Built Plus. It'll give you full access to the selfbuilt.ie website, including the Self-Built Plus journey, which is your step-by-step -step guide to self-building and home improving. Your membership also gives you first access to all videos and podcasts, as well as access to our members-only Facebook group, which features regular Facebook Live events. 